Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. I talk to the tree. Stop and hear what I say. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, second Saturday of the month here in our outdoor living hour, which means we are talking trees with ISA certified arborist John Eisenhower. And I will tell you, I know the trees are happy because this morning it was 65 degrees leaving the Whitman Plantation. I did, I used 260 air conditioning on the way in, two windows down, 60 miles an hour. Just loved that fresh, cool, crisp air. And I, I just know deep down. The trees are loving it more than me. Yeah, it's uh, all the plants in your landscape are loving this. We were talking this morning. You know, you, these plants, if you if the if the temperatures drop below about eighty degrees, your overnight temperatures, everything kind of comes to life again. You get this renaissance. Even you see your roses that have been kind of languishing, just holding on, hunkering down for the for the summer. All of a sudden, you get these cooler nighttime temperatures, and all of a sudden, those roses come to life again. And you get this kind of late season bloom, and I, we love to see that because our, our 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 roses just come to life this time of year. My nut trees put on new growth, yeah. not much, but there's a couple little spots you can see they've pushed yeah, out. Yeah, you leaves. know, and the, the trees need that. You know, they you know don't want a lot of big uh, push just before cold weather comes. But in this next couple of months, you know, Arizona's got a pretty long growing season. In these next couple of months, October, even through you know uh, mid to late November, you'll get some continued uh, leaf development. And then, uh, then finally, trees will start slowing down again for the winter. And you've got a special guest with you today? I do. I've been looking forward to having this guest for a long time. This is my friend Dave Jernigan of the Masters, the, the Gardener's Touch. And he um, and I go way back, about 30 years. Uh, we first met at the, um, the precursor to the, the, what's now known as the Shade Conference. It's a well-known landscapers conference here in town, and Dave and I were um, uh, good friends back then. And uh, what I've really appreciated about you, Dave, is your commitment to not just quality work in the landscape realm, but also your commitment to education. And, and you know, you really know the better quality companies around town when you see who's in attendance at the local educational events. And uh, Dave's uh, been uh, just a, a consummate educator and just a lot of good friends. Good to have you with us today. Thanks. Thanks. Glad to be here. Tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, your um, last 30 years in this industry and, you know, what you've been doing. Well, we, we've got an upscale garden service. We service uh, high-end residential clients for the most part. Um, people that look at their, their yards as a garden rather than a landscape, they, um, you know, our, our little saying is that it's like your own resort that's right outside your door, um, especially with you know, 2020 has been a very difficult year and people spending more time at home. They want to be able to go out and relax and, and enjoy what's out there and not be nitpicking about, you know, problems or having to, to deal with it themselves. And that's what we do. We are as much problem solvers as we are gardeners because we're there every week. Like I was just saying before the show, we, you know, I've got 40 wives. You guys go on dates. We're there every week in and out. We see, we see our clients in their bathrobes and we hear the stories of, of what, and, and we become kind of like part of the family really. So. That's awesome. Yeah. We, uh, um, I'd love to, um, see your landscapes too. When, when, when you mentioned to me this morning 
that you like to be visiting European gardens on Instagram, I thought, okay, this guy's, this guy's got a passion <laughs> for, for gardening. Uh, no, it, it is kind of uh, neat to get draw inspiration from Instagram, looking at all the, the photos. And, and uh, I, I've been impressed with the landscapes I've seen that you've been managing for all these years. And, um, and also just, I, I'm glad to have your input today because we're going to talk a little bit about overseeding lawns. That's a little bit out of my uh, area of expertise, but because we're in that time of, of the season, um, I touch on it only with regard to uh, the need to be sure that you have your trees trimmed before you overseed, if at all possible, because uh, you don't want to be dragging the brush um, from a tree trimming job over that that germinating seed that's just coming up. So we always encourage our customers to be sure you try to get your your tree work done and then do your overseeding. But what's the best timing? Tell me a little bit about, you know, when, when's the best time to get that, that seed in the ground? I ran into some problems in my yard and uh, with regard to bad timing over the last couple of years. Um, yeah, the, you know, grass doesn't know the date. It, it looks at temperature. And Bermuda grass or our summer grass is just going to keep growing um, as long as the nighttime temps are up in the 80s. And even into the low 70s, it'll continue growing. So what you want to do is time it, uh, you know, where the Bermuda is actually slowing down. And uh, for us, I've been pushing it because the, the summers seem to have extended longer and longer. And uh, so I've been pushing back. You know, I like Jay Harper's old uh, saying about overseed by around Halloween and be mowing grass by Thanksgiving. But um, if there's you, also a risk, too, if you if you put your 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 rice seed down too early, that the, the Bermuda will continue to compete with it. Oh, yeah, it that's that's exactly it. And for the bigger companies and commercial people. I mean, they have some business restraints. They have a lot of people to oversee, so they can't be. I do ideal horticultural practices just because of business. But if you could possibly wait, you know, because Bermuda will come back, and the problem is it'll get intermingled with the rye, and then once we hit that cold spell in December, all the Bermuda is going to brown out, and then it looks like your ryegrass is like, what's going on with my rye? Well, it's not rye; it's a Bermuda that's mixed in. So at this point, the only cure is to do what I call a mini scalp and take it back down to, you know, maybe three quarters of an inch or an inch tall. But at that point, even the rye is growing slow, so it takes a little bit to come back and then cover up the Bermuda again. Right. So better just to wait as long as you can. Yeah, so wait. And there's there's a whole series of steps. And, and you know, my wife says I overcomplicate things. It can be as simple. Which one of your 40 wives say that? <laughs> <laughs> the, one that the one that makes me dinner. <laughs> um, um but yeah, you can make this as simple as you want, and you know sometimes you get lucky and everything comes out great. For us, we we can't really take any chances, so we have a lot of steps we go through, um, even before we start to overseed. We'll let the grass grow a little, the Bermuda grow a little bit longer, and then we'll sp- spray a plant growth regulator. Um, and I've taken this from the golf courses. This is what they do. So a PGR plant growth regulator will suppress the Bermuda for about three weeks to a month. And um, that way, when you do your scalp, it holds. And then when you scalp, we put down the seed at 10 to 12 pounds per thousand square feet, which is about a fairway rate. And, um, and then we'll also put down our starter fertilizer at the same time, which has got a lot of potassium and uh, phosphorus in it because we're really looking for root growth with the, uh, pota- with the phosphorus. And the potassium really helps the Bermuda. It, um, 
it helps the Bermuda overwinter, makes it so it'll come out better in the springtime. But we don't want to do a lot of nitrogen at that yeah, point. Yeah, L- lower nitrogen with your fall fertilization, higher nitrogen with your spring fertilization generally. Yeah. Well, what? tell me a little bit about the need for uh, waiting in terms of the health of your Bermuda also. Because what I hap- had happen is I started putting in my winter grass as soon as I possibly could. And it shortened my Bermuda season to the point that over about a four or five year period, the the ryegrass um, started choking out the Bermuda, and I started getting less uh, less Bermuda every every spring. And also, also the, the the rye was persisting, and because the rye is so beautiful in the spring, I would let it, the rye go longer. So I'm putting the rye in earlier in the fall, and then letting the rye go as long as I could into the early summer. And then when the, the Bermuda would finally break and, and be able to, you know, when, the, when the, the rye would die down and the, when the Bermuda would finally come back in the spring, it was more and more sparse. Yeah. So it, Bermuda needs a solid six month of growth to be healthy. And if your Bermuda or if your ryegrass is sucking up the light and, and sucking up the nutrients and doesn't have a chance, you know, you're kind of in a deficit. And that's what we've gone to. We've gone to people starting to overseed in September and they'll let and the newer hybrid ryegrass will take the heat pretty well too. And they'll run it through till June. And if you got a mild thing in July, so then, you know, you've got three, four months max of, of growth and well, I couldn't understand it because now I've got a pretty crappy um, Bermuda lawn in the summer, so I'm 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 yeah. wondering what I what I do now. I'm trying to uh, trying to encourage well, it now. I might. You were telling me uh, a week or two ago that maybe I should actually uh, give it a break and and not overseed with rye at least one season to try to give the Bermuda a good long um, six or eight month um, yeah. push. Yeah, yeah, because the Bermuda will grow right up even. You know, you've, you've been, we've all had Thanksgivings where it's still nice and warm outside. The Bermuda's still looking good. It's not until December when it gets cold, it really knocks it back. So, yeah, if you can give it an extra year, but you can't fight Mother Nature. You know, with your trees and your front yard, it also needs light. Grass needs, you know, at least eight hours of sunlight. And when you only yeah. give it four hours of sunlight, you're going to have problems. So maybe a better solution. Either you might try some fescue, which will take the heat better, and you might be able to keep year around. Or maybe look at a ground cover, just get rid of the grass altogether and maybe go with a green ground cover. Yeah, we've thought about all those options, yeah. one 767 4348 That's one rosie you. When the auto attendant answers, just hit number one to bypass the message. That'll get you in studio with John Eisenhower and Dave Jernigan. And we are talking trees. We got uh, onto a lawn there, but I love the the point you made at the beginning of that trim your trees now so that you're not damaging your ryegrass and dragging it and clearing all the brush out. So that was a great takeaway. And we'll talk about doing a little uh, preventative pruning going into the dormant season now for our deciduous trees. And we'll also talk about the tree of the month here at Rosie on the house right after that. It's the Arizona Rosewood. We should plant a tree. We should carve a heart. We should make some shade. Sounds like Sunday morning praise song. <laughs> Was this casting crows or something? Is that talking about a swing in a tree? I like that. We were just talking about, Dave was saying that's one of the key essentials for a yard is you got to have a swing. 
Yeah, I, I like John said, I've been in business a long time, and you learn new stuff every day. Every day you learn something, and um, I think there's three essential things for a good a good garden. You you got to have a pizza oven, wood fired pizza oven. <laughs> you got to have a small pond where that's lighted that you can see some fish because it's very relaxing. And you got to have a giant. Well, you need a swing. And for me, I'm a big guy, and I have a client that's got a lot of grandkids. They're always going to fight over the swing. So I made a swing out of a slab of mesquite that we'd cut down that was about three feet wide with with big you know inch and a quarter rope, really high up in the mesquite tree for a nice pendulum. And that thing is so much fun. Because it's so big, even when I get on it, I have to hold my hands really wide. And you just feel like you're a little kid again. I just can't laugh, stop <laughs> laughing when I'm on that thing. Yeah, it, it's it's so much fun. We, um, we actually uh, have installed several swings over the years because we're already up high in these trees. And all, we've had customers who said, you know, either they already have a, a tree in this, um, a swing in the tree, or they want to install one. And since we're up there, we can actually do the attachment. And there's a way to attach swings so that they do less damage to the trees because a lot of people will wrap the, the, the chain or the rope around the branch. And over time, it can, it can girdle the branch and actually damage the tree. So there's better ways to attach. We actually put a through bolt oh. all the way through the, 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 the branch that we're attaching to. So we have a nice galvanized either welded or a forged eye bolt that comes down. Then we can attach to that with a carabiner. And then hook the rope to that. And it's a much uh, safer and long-term, uh, uh, it sustains the weight. And it's so much fun to have a, a nice swing. And the higher, the better, of course. Oh, yeah. And depending on the age of the kids, you know, you don't want to be a, <laughs> having a, a too large a pendulum <laughs> that will actually come back and hit the tree. So you got to have to make sure your angles are, are correct. But having a nice attachment point as high in the tree as you can gives just years and years of a lot of fun. So. Well, tell me about this Arizona uh, Arizona rosewood. Tree of the month is the Vacalinia californica. And it's why the name California is the name of an Arizona rosewood. I don't know. It's not right, but um, it is what it is. But it's a great tree. It's, 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 uh, it's really more of a big shrub, like some of the trees on our, on our, on our favorite tree list. But we include it because it's so bulletproof, and it's a wonderful replacement tree for uh, the oleanders, which are dying across the valley. And it's a great privacy screen, has a nice um, kind of leathery uh, uh, dark green leaf on it. Uh, it is evergreen, and it's a, uh, uh, it can be trained up into a, a tree. In fact, I saw one the other day that was about 20 feet tall and had a single trunk on it. It was a beautiful canopied shave tree. It looked like a, a, a Texas olive. It was just beautiful. Uh, but most often they're a, a multi-stem shrub. They can grow to about 8 to 12 feet tall is kind of their typical size in the landscape. But if you're looking for a nice privacy screen or something to kind of replace the oleanders that, are, that have died um, or just a nice accent tree, um, and very, very low maintenance too. You know, from my point of view, I always look at, you know, how much how much work is whatever we have in the ground going to take to take care of. And and although I don't see them too much, I think because they're so slow growing. But 
but they really take little to no care at all. They don't drop too much, you know, a little bit of selective pruning for crown reduction to keep them, to get them fatter and real low water use. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know of a single pest or disease that they get. No, really uh, bulletproof in that regard. And thanks for reminding me, they are really slow growing. That is the one downside. So it's not one of those trees or, or shrubs you can put in that will uh, achieve its landscape purpose in two or three years. Uh, like some of our more fast-growing species. So think more in terms of a five- to eight-year uh, time frame in terms of getting it to f- fully uh, achieve that eight- or ten-foot height. Any color? Any blossoms? Yeah, I it's mean, got a little you, kind of a creamy, talking about kind replacing. Of a creamy, a creamy white bloom. It's a pretty yeah. uh, 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 short bloom cycle. Okay. Yeah, they do have a small little, you know, uh, little, little, little flower they put on, but... Yeah, it's mainly just uh, planted for its foliage uh, color, that dark green leaf, and it's got a little serrated edge to it. But, yeah, uh, next time you're at the nursery, ask about the Arizona rosewood, and you can go check it out. As I said, durable, bulletproof, and one of those, yeah, I, I like the idea of low maintenance as well. You mentioned slow-growing and bulletproof. It seems like the slow-growing ones are more bulletproof. They tend to be. I don't know be. what that is. Is it, is it because the growth is so much slower the the density of the bark is so much stronger that it doesn't allow for pest intrusion or whatever but it seems like if it grows the slower it grows the more durable it is yeah and also the less litter because as a tree's not producing wood is qu- quite as fast you know uh, putting on new tissue it's of course going to be losing those leaves at a at a slower rate can i just give a plug for um one additional low-maintenance tree. I spoke to a homeowner about this just yesterday, uh, and it's the acacia anura. It's a uh, common name is a mulga. Once again, it's one of those trees that once it's planted, there's not a lot you need to do to it, kind of like the your, your Texas live oak. It's, it has an upright growth habit. But if you're looking for one of those trees that just is very low-maintenance, that you can kind of plant and 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 let go with it just with a little bit of, like Dave said, a little bit of minor grooming from time to time. The acacia anura, or it's called a mulga, is a, another great choice. And uh, we like those a lot. Is just from the standpoint of the low maintenance. That's um, not often true for trees like your mesquites and your hybrid palaverdes, which uh, are wonderful because they, they grow quickly, achieve their landscape purpose quickly, but they are... Uh, high maintenance trees, and yeah, those of you who have a mesquite tree are nodding your heads. Yes, I know all about that. Mesquite trees are dropping something every every season of the year. If it's not a leaf, it's a bloom. If it's not a bloom, it's a seed pod, and then the whole cycle starts again. You know? By by the way, <laughs> you with the mesquites, I know you guys have been working with plant growth regulators on suppressing the bean pods. Is that is that coming to, for you guys? Is that working? Is that coming or? to fruition? Yes, it's coming to non-fruition. To non-fruition. Yes, it is. Yeah, we are having some real success. For those of you who have those seed pods and you're wanting to get some control over them, we have been applying a, a plant growth regulator. It's just a hormonal treatment that kind of tricks the tree into thinking it needs to uh, not put on fruit. More Talking Trees after bottom of the hour news right here at Rosie on the House. Your trees got you stumped? Call in your question, 1-888-767-4348. When you hear the auto attendant, press 1. That's one rosie for you And you've got a great list of talking points to get to, but we were talking about the Arizona Rosewood, your tree shrub of the month, and we've got 
uh, gentleman that has called in and wants to know a little bit more about it. Jim, welcome to the broadcast. Yes, sir. Uh, got two questions. One, does the Arizona Rosewood require a lot of sun? And number two is in the county, if somebody's tree grows into the other guy's yard or through his fence, does he have the right to cut it and throw it back into your yard, or is it his responsibility? <laughs> Are you asking for a friend? <laughs> well, No, I'm asking for my really nice neighbor who I put a six-foot cyclone in the trees go through so he cuts it and he wants to throw it back into my thing i said no once you cut it it's yours yeah well let's go to question number one (laughs) (laughs) question number one yes uh, the arizona road rosewood does require sun in fact it is a full sun plant and uh, i'm not sure how well it would do in 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 a low light setting Um, with regard to the property line issues with branches uh, coming across from your neighbor's yard. Technically, you have a the right to trim any branches from your neighbor's tree that crosses your property line, but there's a caveat to that. You need to uh, make those pruning cuts or cutting roots. Sometimes roots will grow across the property lines and people will cut the roots, and that um, can be problematic. You have to do this with respect to the health of the tree. You can't just arbitrarily or without, you know, without some um, consideration for the uh, consequences of those pruning cuts, just start cutting branches at the property line. Uh, I've been, I've served as an expert witness on a couple of cases with regard to neighbors who cut branches at the property line, uh, and it, it was, had a bad effect on the trees. I had, and- had one tree was, uh, a bunch of citrus trees were cut on the west side of the trees. So the sun came in and just baked the, you know, just caused a lot of sun damage. And there was a lawsuit um, that followed. So you have to just be careful that you don't um, destroy your neighbor's trees. There, there really is something called Arizona tree law. Yes, there is. <laughs> and his question was, if it, his neighbor, so his tree is growing into his neighbor's yard, his neighbor's cutting it and throwing the branches into his yard because the tree is growing on his side. Is that yeah. is there anything in the tree law about that, or is that just you know neighbor manners you got to work out? Yeah, this is this is called neighbor management. Yeah, yeah, it is it is a matter of of being very careful. In fact, we have counseled so many people to try to keep them out of court that you do need to try to you know work with your neighbors and try to be as if they are your branches on your your tree and he's throwing them on your side of the fence. It 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 might be a good idea to try to cut those branches at the property line. Now that you know your neighbor's feelings about this, be be able to trim those branches on your own before they extend across the property line. But it, it's a shame because some neighbors don't mind a few branches hanging over. Uh, others want them trimmed right at the property line. Uh, I convinced a neighbor the other day not to trim the branches that were hanging over the property line. In fact, I, I appealed to the neighbor to say, wouldn't you prefer to have some beautiful limbs hanging over your neighbor, over your property line a few feet and deal with some of the litter than to have these branches cut at an arbitrary location right at the property line? Because you'll be looking at these stubbed off branches at the property line, whereas we'll, we'll you know, 
allow those to grow over your property line over the next few years, and we'll try to manage them. And if they get too far into your your yard, then we'll cut them back appropriately, but not just cutting them at a at a uh, right at the property line. So this does raise some some real some legal issues, and uh, you know try to uh, work with your neighbors so that you can cooperate and enjoy those trees together. Thanks for the call. Hope that helped, Jim. And let's see if we can help Julie. Wants to talk about an ash tree. Welcome to the program. Tell us about your tree. Good morning. Well, I have two ash trees. They were planted in 1994. Um, One is doing beautifully. The the second one has always struggled just a little. And I, most of the bark, I think it was my dog, uh, most of the bark was torn off. And I thought I was keeping a close eye on it. I thought I had a good, excuse me, good enough canopy. But with this brutal summer, um, and I think I did finally cover it, the trunk, um, and I've been trying to water it and stuff, and I was wondering if there's anything else. I think it's if it's not dead already, it's quickly on its way. Should I just give up at this point? Should I? Is there anything else I can do? Well... I've looked looked at more ash trees in the last two weeks than any other tree species uh, just due to phone calls that we've had coming through our office. You're not alone. The ash trees have been hammered. This is, um, you know, typical of it's of the species. Because they're a broad-leafed tree, not, not native, um, they are uh, just unable to handle the high heat. You get leaf burn. I wouldn't suggest taking the tree out right away because there's a possibility that the le- the branches and the twigs that are supporting those leaves are still viable and that the leaves have simply burned up. Uh, when the uh, when the leaf can't cool, the leaf surface gets so hot that it can't um, cool itself properly, uh, the leaves will start to burn. You'll get margin burn where the outside margin of the leaves begins to burn. But in extremely hot temperatures, there's nothing you can do. It it doesn't matter if you're deep watering the the uh, leaf surface because the leaves are so thin, they just burn quickly and um, and there's there's no recovery. The problem is is if a tree completely is uh, has no leaves left on it that are green, and I've seen a few ash trees that have a, a, a parts of the tree are still alive and some of the leaves are still green. Um, the, the tree loses its photosynthetic uh, capacity. It stops photosynthesizing and creating the energy reserves to, to stay alive. So there's a, very, there's a tipping point um, beyond which a tree can't recover. We call it a mortality spiral, where the tree is spiraling down due to various stress, stressors. And um, once it, it, it gets down too deep in that mortality spiral, it's hard to uh, turn it around. But I'll probably wait until early next spring before you make your final decision uh, to take it out. Or, you know, better yet, maybe call an arborist out who can do a, an aerial inspection and, and, and check the uh, viability of some of those smaller branches higher up in the tree. Because if you do a scratch test with your, your thumbnail on the branches, starting at the uh, smallest branches and working your way back into the larger diameter wood, you'll find where the, the green wood still is. Sometimes we've even cut branches back to a hat rack of just larger diameter branches with the hopes that we'll get a a regeneration of of growth out of those cuts, you know, cutting all the dead branches back. It's kind of a last-ditch effort to give the tree a chance to survive, but if it has a healthy root system, it might be better to uh, 
to cut a tree all the way back and see if you can get a regeneration uh, as opposed to putting a new plant, a new tree in that would take you know 20 years to achieve that same size. It's not ideal, but that might be an option for you. We've done that recently with a couple of trees, and uh, we've seen some good results. Those ash trees are wimps. There, <laughs> there was a couple on our property when we got there, and some still exist, but they are wimps. I, I have to agree. <laughs> I, I don't. I took. I told my customer yesterday. I've taken them off my, you know, my list many, many years ago because of the issues they have. And they're, um, yeah, they just are not built for this climate. They're so beautiful. It's a shame because when they're young, uh, in those first five to eight years, you can't find a more beautiful tree in the landscape. But they do develop a lot of problems and not too many years down the road. You know, 15, 20 years, you start having issues with ash decline and uh, branches dying back indiscriminately. And then, of course, this, you know, this, this summer has shown uh, another uh, Achilles heel uh, with the ash trees, is that they just cannot handle this kind of intense heat. Yeah, I remember overhearing a conversation at an Arizona Community Tree Council event, somebody trying to get it declassified as a legacy tree because the life cycle in Arizona is so short that you know you, it's like you can't ex- get more than 20 years out of these. Yeah. They shouldn't be uh, on the If you've on got one of those big listing. 25-year-old ash trees, you know, you're, you're very fortunate because they, they, they do provide a beautiful... Um, deciduous tree in the landscape. but Well, let's talk about some of the things on your talking points. We've got callers on the line, and we will get to them, but I want to make sure we get to all of our tree to-dos checked off the list for. Uh, well, I wanted this to just good... touch a little bit. We talked about some of the preventive things you can do for heat, and, and I just want to talk a little bit about recovery at this point. You know, what if you do have trees like the ash that are really struggling? And um, we, we, the, our adage is that as go the roots – so go the shoots. If whatever's happening underground is going to be mirrored above ground, you know, if you're having problems below ground, you'll find corresponding um, dieback or uh, evidence above ground. And when we see these system-wide um, symptoms above ground in the tops of your trees, it often points to a problem below ground. And conversely, when we do good things underground, we find the above ground results are amazing. And it's not just a matter of fertilizer, too. There are lots of things we can do to uh, really improve the growing conditions, to improve the soil below the ground, to build the soil profile over, over the years. We have a very high pH soil here in, in, in the valley and throughout the low desert areas throughout Arizona. So we have a, a, a real uh, issue with um, just chemical uptake. We just have um, or, or, uh, our, our nutrient uptake. Um, we have uh, you know, issues with uh, very low organic matter in the soil. These are all things that are very helpful to root development, root, root growth. So if you want to try to improve your soil, there's things you can do. We have additives as well, citric acid, humic acid, kelp extracts, uh, wetting agents, beneficial bacteria, which is quite a, 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 a nice thing to be adding into our soil. Is There's a lot of beneficial bacteria that will actually help to um, improve the, 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 the microbiology within the soil. So you're having uh, just a more favorable rooting environment. And there's a very common uh, additive too, which is mycorrhizae. Uh, whether it's helpful or not is, is debatable in some of our Arizona soils. Um, and, and, and actually the, the sources from which the mycorrhizae is derived. Mycorrhizae is a, is a, a fungus that is, uh, has a, a symbiotic relationship with roots and they help to absorb more water and nutrients in the soil and they um, we can add mycorrhizae to the soil, and these um, can it can add to the uh, 
to the uh, uh, the health of, of the of the soil profile. But these are, I, I mentioned the, all of these things because they're over and above fertilizer. Fertilizer is kind of the first thing you think of in terms of of you know adding something to the soil to help your plant health. But fertilizer is not always just a, a, an answer. You know, f- fertilizers have chemical salts, um, so they're going to raise your, your sodium levels. It can be um, doing things you don't want them to do, as, as Dave and I were saying earlier about the nitrogen can push growth in the fall, and you don't really want that happening. Uh, you want to be having a, 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 a higher potassium and, um, and, uh, um, and phosphorus content in the fall for better root development. But these are the... Um, there are other additives and things we can do to be able to have a, a healthier um, uh, soil a, as a whole. Yeah, you know, one thing I wanted to add is is everybody's inclination is to add more water because it's been so hot. And with added water, you get soil compaction. They don't have a chance to dry out. And the other thing that I've learned recently is depending on the time of year, our water comes from different sources. And in the heat of the summer, it's a lot of it's coming from canals or, or recycled water where the salts never get taken out. So the water is saltier in the winter, in the summertime than it is in the winter. So we're actually compounding the problem in some cases. So anything you can do to bring the pH down, um, and also, um, you know, just at this point, you can let things dry out a little bit. We're talking trees with John Eisenhower and Dave Jernigan. More right after this. I'll buy you tall, tall trees and all the waters in the seas. I'm a fool, fool, fool for you. Just don't water the tree with the seawater. That wouldn't be good. <laughs> no. Let's get to Alice next on the line before we get to George. Or here talking trees. Hi, I, good morning. Good morning. Um, yes, I'd like to find out what kind of shrub that I could plant, you know, here in in Phoenix, that I could trim up to be a small tree. Well, there's a couple that you could work with. There are some shrubs that are actually sold as trees, like your oleander tree, your thavisha, your yellow oleander. I think of a um, uh, that vacalinia. I think is is um, also uh, sold as a tree, a standard. Tacomas, the yep. Orange Jubilee or the Snoring Yellow Bells are both coming out with trees of those as well. Yeah, good choice. The, 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 that's the Tacoma, uh, the Yellow Bells, Orange Jubilee. Those are, uh, yeah, those are awesome. In fact, you can, you can plant them multi-stemmed and then kind of, and uh, over time, they'll, you can start trimming them up to be, um, have a little bit more open base on them, more of a vase-shaped base, and start trimming up the lower branches. Uh, now, where is the tree going, Alice? In my front yard. Um, I do have an ash tree, and I was ta- listening to you about the ash tree, but I planted it too, too close to the uh, gas line. It's only like two feet away from the gas line, and I'm, that just concerns me. So I thought, well, I, don't, I want to remove that and plant some shrubs that will grow up to be a smaller tree with a smaller root base around. Yeah, I think that, that uh, um, orange jubilee or the yellow bells would be a good choice because they grow so quickly and they grow nice and tall and you, you'll, they'll fill in beautifully. And they'll also um, give you a nice bloom as well. They uh, are one of those spring to fall uh, yeah. bloomers, so you'll have pretty much uh, all-season all uh, floral display 
A little bit uh, messy at times. It can drop a lot of litter, but they're sure a lot of fun. We have a nice orange jubilee in our backyard, and that thing is just, you know, we if you have a mild, they're, they, they're a little frost sensitive, so they'll, they'll often freeze back in the winter, but a mature one will just bounce back real easily once you trim them back. But if you have a mild winter like we've had the last couple winters, you know, they'll just keep yeah. on growing and um, I've got a hedge between myself and my neighbor, and a few years ago when we did have a hard freeze, I cut them down to the ground, and honestly, in three months, they were six feet tall again. Yeah. So they grow really quickly, but they are frost-sensitive. They'll take a, they'll they'll get dinged up when it gets cold, but it's pretty easy to come back from. But really, you could do that. You could really make a tree out of any bigger shrub. I know there's a house I, I admire every time I go down by Camelback Mountain as I come off the mountain and they've got a row of them like a pleached hedge of bougainvilleas where they've made them into trees. So you've got, you know, a nice inch and a half trunk and then a nice hedge floating up in the air of these bougainvilleas, which is kind of cool. There's a couple suggestions for you, Alice. You can write those down and walk through your local nursery garden center and take uh, take notes of which ones you like and decide which one's right for your your front yard. Let's see if we can squeeze George in here before we uh, wrap up this hour. George, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. We've got some concer- major concerns with our saguaros and our barrel cactuses. A um, couple of our barrel cacti have up and died, and we're guessing it's because of the heat. And one of our, I guess it's called a fish hook barrel cacti, has mm-hmm fallen over because we tried to uh, water around them, figuring that things were just too dry. And we've contacted a company, and they said we need to move our cactuses because they're too close together. And our concern is, well, they've been there for probably 100-plus years, and now all of a sudden being too close is a concern. Yeah, I, I'm kind of with you on that. I, I get a lot of things like that. I think there's a problem here. It's like, well, it's been working for 15, 20 years, and with your case, 100 years, I think you're probably on the right track. Um, you know, a lot of times, especially with our desert varieties, we can kill things with kindness, with trying to give them extra water. I know I'm guilty of killing a giant saguaro back in the day when I was a youngster because I gave it some extra water and it plumped up. I'm like, oh, this is great. This is the best-looking saguaro I've ever seen. So every, you know, once a month, I'd, I'd flood this thing, and Another month later, I came and the whole thing was crushed. It had fallen over, crushed a guardrail. It was it was bad. So, yeah, don't. Uh, I would advise, you know, doing as little as possible with the cactus. Now, this year, I will have to say the golden barrels um, really took a beating. We started covering ours with shade cloth, a thirty percent shade cloth, in in uh, late July, because if you look all over town, they're just kind of burnt up. Any cactus that are, are not really native to here took a hit more than others. But if you are giving them extra water, they'll fill up on the top and they'll tip over. And, and that's they, hard to program in a lot of people's head. Cactus that's not native to Arizona. What? Yeah, there is. Yeah, there's a lot from South America and and other parts of the world that they bring here because they're you know golden barrels are neat, they're pretty, they're unusual, but you won't find them you know if you're hiking Camelback Mountain or anyplace else out there. Um, and there's a lot of them like that. Um, some of them, you know, from over in Texas, they bring over here that look good. But again, it just doesn't get quite as hot. Well, this year has been especially bad. And I, I do want to point that out. Have mercy on your gardeners. I mean, I'm so frustrated <laughs> <laughs> as I look at my yards. But it, 
you know, we didn't just break records, we crushed records. We doubled the amount of days over 110 and nighttime temps below uh, that never got below 90. Dave Jurgen, the Garden's Touch, thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us. And as always, John Eisenhower, Integrity Tree, Save a Tree. Integrity, Save a Tree. <laughs> it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, you know. <laughs> <laughs>